Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift. You're with Ian on Community Radio for Triple Z. And for the next hour, we'll be discussing Black Lives Matter. Just following up from the paradigm shift that was on recently by Andy about the Black Lives Matter struggle here in Australia. And, you know, we've had some really large crowds. In Brisbane, we had over 30,000 people marching from King George Square over to Musgrave Park. And I thought it would be worth looking at what gave it the impetus, and that is the events that have occurred in the United States, which began with the murder of African-American man George Floyd by Minneapolis police. So over the next hour, we'll hear the voices of civil rights leaders in the US, we'll hear black artists. The voices that we will hear over this next hour are people like Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King, Malcolm X, Aretha Franklin, and the novelist James Baldwin. We interviewed Peter Gray from California, but because of technical problems arising from Peter's being under lockdown in the mountains behind Los Angeles during the COVID-19 pandemic, you will hear my voice reading Peter's answers. The interviewer is Susan from The Paradigm Shift. So let's just go to that interview now. There's an uprising going on in the United States after police murdered George Floyd, an African-American man living in Minneapolis. Some parallels exist with the rioting that went on after Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis in 1968. Not because George Floyd was a public figure like Dr King, but because of the frustration felt by the community for ongoing racism. No political party in the US has come out attacking the root causes that stem from capitalism's inability to deal with poverty, lack of public housing, mass incarceration, drug and alcohol abuse. Wall Street surely must crash. This is an interview with Peter from the Radical Times archive about the uprising currently occurring in the US. Can you please introduce yourself? I'm Peter Gray, the manager of Radical Times archive. I'm a filmmaker and an expat Aussie now living under lockdown in California because of the risk of COVID-19 infection. I lived in Brisbane during the early 1970s and made a record of the history of that period in a number of documentary films, including The Battle for Bowen Hills. 
Between 1984 and 1999, I lived in a number of different countries in Asia and Europe, where I continued to make films. I eventually moved to California to work in the film industry before retiring about 10 years ago. I now manage a community FM radio station close to where I live in the mountains north of Los Angeles. What's happening in the United States after the murder of George Floyd by police? Protests have taken place in every state of the country and in at least 140 US cities. And the protests have spread to many other countries as well. Accounts about the uprising dominate mainstream news bulletins here in Australia. What role is the media playing? Is the establishment fanning the flames of discontent to depose Trump? The media is doing what it always does, pushing their own thinly disguised agendas. Fox News defends Trump almost unconditionally and blames everything on the Democrats. Counter to this, CNN and MSN are masters at relentlessly criticising Trump. They do a great job at undermining everything Trump. You could say that warms the soul by helping liberals feel all warm and fuzzy inside. These popular news outlets are really part of the establishment, reflecting the Democrats and Republicans' corporatist view of the world. When it comes right down to it, these news organisations are really an enemy to the left, especially the progressive left. They use every dirty trick in the book to protect and promote the US establishment view of the country and of the world. Here, ABC commentators' news play on the violence of the protests. As usual, the media emphasises the elements in their reporting that serves to sensationalise their coverage for the sake of ratings. So-called news these days tends towards abstract entertainment mixed with subtle or not so subtle propaganda that pushes those agencies' political agendas. Of course, bias is unavoidable, which I find acceptable as long as they are clear about whatever acts they have to grind and don't try to hide it like most news outlets do. CNN was under siege in Atlanta a few days ago. An Australian Channel 7 news crew was assaulted by police in Washington, D.C. Yes, I saw live footage of that siege on CNN World Headquarters in Atlanta. An interesting standoff between police and demonstrators. Do you know what group or groups are behind the peaceful protests? How are they organised? I'm not in a position to know much about levels of organisation, or lack thereof, of the many groups involved. They appear to be operating more on a grassroots community level without national coordination. Some seem to be saying the looting is being organised by far-right white groups. I get a sense that some of the buildings that were vandalised or set on fire was orchestrated by far-right provocateurs possibly agents for the police. As far as I know, there is no conclusive evidence proving this to be the case. If such evidence exists, it has been successfully buried or suppressed. It is easy to plant a few provocateurs among the protesters to harmlessly discharge a weapon. The cry of shots fired 
is a good excuse for the cops to respond with a hail of bullets. Tragically, at least 17 people have been killed in violence connected to the protests, along with numerous injuries and millions of dollars in property damage. Does Antifa really exist as an organisation? Antifa appears to exist as a network of local independent cells with little or no coordination on a national level. Their modus operandi is something akin to guerrilla tactics where they pop up out of nowhere to assist. They claim their role is not provocative, but rather to help protect peaceful protesters from attacks by the police and the National Guard. We can be thankful for this type of support, especially when the forces against the protesters have the overwhelming upper hand. Antifa is clearly being used as a scapegoat by the eternal buckpasser in the White House. As an act of desperation, Trump is trying to blame Antifa for the unrest that he himself has partly provoked. However, it seems the blame game is not working out very well for Trump in deflecting responsibility. Trump usually gets away with this cowardly tactic, but it does not appear to be working so well this time because the uprising has widespread popular support. It is as if the country was, is saying, enough, we're not going to take it anymore. Hello. I'd like to sing a song that I wrote about a young black soldier who refused his orders to kill in Vietnam. Uh, he was placed in the stockade and he gave an interview to the press and among his reasons for, for doing this, he said that um, he thought the war in Vietnam was a, an American war of aggression. He thought it was a racist and genocidal war. He said he doubted very much if America could bring equality and democracy to the yellow people of Vietnam when it never brought equality and democracy to the black, brown, red, and yellow people of America. And he thought that um, before we begin to preach and leave our country to spread the word that we better clean up our own mess at home. And this song is called Soldier We Love You. I read that you took a stand and refused to kill in Vietnam. You said no man was your enemy. If what he's fighting for is to be free. Yeah, they locked you up. 
was performed by Rita Martinson from the movie FTA about the Vietnam War. My guest is Australian expatriate Peter Gray from the Radical Times Archive. He manages a community radio station outside Los Angeles. In 1968, American Liberals had Bobby Kennedy. Now all they have is sleepy Joe Biden. Implicit. They are very much part of the problem and in no sense are they part of any type of solution. The Democrats is a right-wing party, just like the Republicans. Democrats support corporate America in the same way as the Republicans. There is little to distinguish one party from the other when it gets right down to it. Democrat hopeful for the presidential election in November, Joe Biden, told an African... Why is voting for Democrats a political norm among African Americans, or has that finally been broken? There is some history there that is rapidly becoming ancient history. Simply put, they like the idea of Obama being a president because he's a black man, and Biden gets credit, deserved or not, for being the black president's right-hand man. This support for the Democrats is primarily among older generation blacks, and I think more in the southern states. The situation is very different for younger blacks, however. I'd say on the whole, race aside, the younger generations do not trust either party. There is nothing they're ever likely to get from a so-called two-party system because they realize it is really a one-party system. The establishment, Therefore, turnout is low amongst the biggest voting bloc in the country. I'm thinking that it is poverty, as much as race, that's driving what's happening in the US. Yes, in broad brushstrokes, I would agree. Systematic racism combined with the effects of poverty, 
are major driving factors. I'd also say that there are many layers to this, including the political consequences from the collapse of democracy and democratic processes, leaving the vast majority with an overwhelming feeling of powerlessness. In other words, people have no real say or influence in things that directly and indirectly affect their lives. 40 million people unemployed in the US is a lot of poverty. Yes, an already bad situation has been made a lot worse in a relatively short space of time. The US economy is based on massive debt and endlessly printing money. Therefore, it is not sustainable and subject to sudden collapse. The stock exchange is starting to recover from the major crash from a few months ago. However, the stock exchange is not a good indicator of the overall health of the economy, particularly from a worker's point of view. I guess it might be some sort of indicator of the health of corporate America, who, by the way, have managed to turn the pandemic into a profitable enterprise to the tune of multi-billions of dollars. But as always, the workers and taxpaying public are basically footing the bill. Only American workers create real wealth, while corporations manage to accumulate this wealth without, it, without creating any real wealth of their own. As greed undermines the ability of the American worker to create real wealth for the country, the economy is destined to crash or suffer an extended period in devastating decline, quite possibly a major decade-long depression. Mm. Trump has been threatening to bring in the army to dominate the protesters, as he phrases it. I think it is a hollow threat. Recently, there has been a clear pushback from current and former high-ranking military officials against Trump's plan to unleash the US military to dominate protesters. This suggests the US military is warning Trump against trying to use military force for his own political ends. It also suggests they would oppose or not cooperate with an illegal or corrupt use of military force. Normally, military troops are forbidden by law to be involved in domestic law enforcement activities inside the United States. You can't use the army against your own people. However, the Insurrection Act of 1807 can allow a president to use the country's military to suppress civil disorder, insurrection and rebellion. Usually the law allows the president to do that only if he is asked to do so by a state governor or through legislature, which seems unlikely to me, therefore a hollow threat. Overacting with simple brute force is not necessarily going to make things any better for Trump. On the contrary, forcefully suppressing the protests will drive down his approval rating in the polls even further. Trump's approval rating is at all-time low. Well, this is just another way of saying that protesters appear to be winning the battle for hearts and minds. What will this mean for Trump in the presidential elections in November this year? My guess is the current widespread revolt is a prelude to similar popular uprisings that are likely to occur closer to November or between now and the November general election. There is a profound undercurrent of discontent in the general population that goes beyond the particular issue demanding reform of the police force. It is part of the story, but not the whole of the story. 
Although ruthless and dangerous, Trump is somewhat of an incompetent buffoon at the same time. He is inherently lazy and disinterested in planning and strategizing beyond the moment. The way I see it, the reality TV personality is way out of his depth and floundering. His response so far has been highly ineffective and has even attracted scorn from the establishment who would normally be on his side. Trump's approval rating is dropping like a stone right now, losing roughly 10 points in the last month. Trump is trailing behind Biden by about 10 points in states that he won in 2016. Mm. My guest is Australian expatriate Peter Gray from the Radical Times Archive. He manages a community radio station outside Los Angeles. New York Police Chief Terence Monaghan addressed a crowd protesting the death of George Floyd, then took a knee with them. One way to quell the protests? There have been several instances of cops or mayors taking a knee to show support for the protesters or in acknowledgement of their concerns. As a result, something amazing happened, which I see as a tipping point. The police stopped attacking the protesters and everything changed virtually overnight. Protests across the country immediately became peaceful and respectful, thus proving that it was the police doing all the rioting and causing all the violence, not the demonstrators. I guess it is possible that police nationwide took notice of this phenomenon and changed their tactics. It was easier and much cheaper to keep the peace by pulling back. Is the uprising masking a worse crisis with an even greater human cost? If Trump manages to crash the American economy, leading to something similar to the Great Depression in the 1930s, then the human cost will be immeasurable. Looking at it in a more immediate sense, both sides are essentially leaderless and therefore are not unified in direction, tactics or goals. Like the mishandling of the pandemic, the government is all over the place like a dog on lino. That can't be a good thing. It is hard to imagine someone more ill-equipped than Trump to deal with a delicate situation like soothing widespread social unrest across the country. I don't see the struggle in the US so clearly in classic left, center, right terms anymore. While that remains applicable, I see the struggle as more of an up-down struggle with the establishment on top versus the rest underneath the greater majority. I don't see the left or center playing much of a role in the or fundamentally changing anything in recent decades. There is no democracy in this country and has not been so for a long time. A third party is currently being established by disenfranchised progressive leaders from the Bernie Sanders failed Our Revolution movement. The idea is to have this new party in place so it can have influence in the 2022 midterm elections. Part of the idea is to unite progressive elements from the left and to do so with the more progressive elements from the right to challenge the unbridled power of the establishment. It is a bold move that will upset the status quo. If the third party becomes popular, it will take votes away from both the existing mainstream parties. Although, if it just splits the democratic vote, this will help 
Republicans to be elected. Australians have Medicare and free education, oppose the carrying of arms and expect the government to look after them when there are crises like the GFC and COVID-19. Yet Americans do not seem to expect even these basic rights. The greater majority of Americans are calling for those basic rights and more. But the path to the reform is blocked at every turn. Healthcare in this country is run by for-profit corporations. The cost of healthcare is disproportionately more expensive than anywhere else in the world for a similar standard of care. This privatised system is good for the corporations but bad, even disastrous for the rest of us. To put it bluntly, some people pay the price for corporate-run health with their lives or by going bankrupt. This applies to most institutions in the United States, including education, the media, the legal system, the probation of firearms and so on. Bringing these issues to, to the forefront in people's minds. It was spearheaded by the untiring work of Bernie Sanders and his supporters over the last four years. These reforms are now mainstream policies and extremely popular among most Americans. For this we can be thankful, although the Sanders campaign for actual reform failed miserably. Even raising the minimum wage to a basic living wage is opposed by most of corporate America, effectively shooting itself in the foot because the endless concentration of wealth in the hands of a few simply can't be sustained. Undermine the workforce, the real lifeblood of the country and true creator of wealth and the national economy will so surely fail. We are on a path where this is almost, almost certain to happen with a knock-on effect detrimental to the health of the world economy. Ultimately, we all pay the price for Trump's folly. The following is a recording of a conversation between James Baldwin, the author, and Malcolm X, the activist and Muslim. James Baldwin was a prophetic man, for in 1963 he foresaw the problems of 2020. He was born in Harlem in New York on a block full of African-American children and he used to play in a rubbish dump. Both his parents were born in the South and if they had waited a few more seconds, so would have James Baldwin. He went on to write many books, but this is in essence his views of the identity crisis that America faces. It is the first time, I think, in the history of this country that a Negro audience, a, a, a Negro laborer, a Negro, a Negro schoolboy has heard his own condition described and without anybody trying to flinch from it. It is very different hearing speech by Roy Wilkins in which, you know, um, one is told in one way or another that tomorrow will be better. Uh, and I think this has a tremendous effect. This is the reason Muslim, I think the Muslim speaker has so much power over his audience. It comes out of a failure in the Republic. This country has lied about the Negro situation for 100 years. And now what has happened is the lies are no longer viable, can no longer be, can, can no longer be accepted even when they can make a toll. 
And the country has waited so long and it does not know how to handle this and has created a moral vacuum. There's a moral vacuum in the, in the Negro ghettos and the same way there's a moral vacuum in New Orleans which is filled with desperate people. Now, I don't think that we can afford this. It seems to me, and now I speak for myself, my call with the official Negro leadership and my call with um, those such Negroes as imagine they are um, integrated or imagine they have somehow escaped Negro condition is that they are not willing to do what I think is absolutely essential when it's got to re-examine the basis, the standards of this country, which not only afflict black people, they afflict the entire country. No one in this country, as far as I can see, really knows any longer what it means to be, to be an American. He, he does not know what he means by freedom. He does not know what he means by equality. We live in the most abysmal ignorance of not only the condition of 20 million Negroes in our midst, but the, the whole nature of the life being lived in the rest of the world. And I think that the American, the American white man, the Republic, is paying and beginning to pay for his treatment of the Negro in terms of what he does not know about the rest of the world. You cannot live, it seems to me, in a, you cannot live 30 years, I'd say, with something in your closet which you know is there and pretend it is not there without something terrible happening to you. By and by, what you can, what I cannot say, if I know that any one of you, you know, has um, murdered your brother, your mother, and the corpse is in this room under the table, and I know it, and you know it, and you know I know it. And we cannot talk about it. It takes no time at all before we cannot talk about anything. Before absolute silence descends. And that kind of silence is descending on this country. I think that this country has become incon almost inconceivably radical. It has really got to do something that's not done before. And this involves the humanity of everybody in it. And the key to this is in the Negro. If one can face that, one can face anything. But that has not been faced. I think this is the reason for the confusion and the ferment and the great, great danger. Again, let me say this, and I will stop. I'm not religious. Um, and therefore, since I'm not religious, all theologies, uh, for me, are suspect. All theologies have a certain use. But um, I never, for example, believe in the image of the myth of the virgin birth. I never quite understood why it was necessary to propagate such a peculiar notion. Therefore, you know, as theologies go, it seems to me the Muslim theology is just as good as any. We're going to quarrel with it there. I can't, anyway. But I personally, I personally reject that theology as I reject all others. And I don't think that we need it. And this is a great, this is a gamble. This is a very reckless thing to say. And perhaps, you know, I'm, perhaps it's very mystical. I know the kind of world I would like to see. I would like to think of myself as not needing to be um, um, supported by a myth. I would like to think of myself as being able to face whatever it is I have to face as me, dealing with what I have and what, and what there is, without having my identity dependent on something which finally has to be believed, which cannot be tested. This is why one is converted to a religion, you know. I think that it, there's nothing very dangerous in it. What I would like to see, and maybe we'll never live to see it, is a world in which these things are not necessary, which I will not need to invent, in effect, a heritage and a history that can deal with the one I have 
and will not need in order to in order to deal with the rest of the world not need to feel superior to them but simply simply be a part of them and it seems to me this may happen well let me see a world in which there are no blacks there are no whites where it does not matter because as long as it does matter as long as it does matter and it doesn't matter who is wearing a shoe the confusion will be great and the bloodshed will be great that was james baldwin author my guest is Australian expatriate Peter Gray from the Radical Times Archive. He manages a community radio station outside Los Angeles. Here's a quote from Franz Fanon, psychiatrist, philosopher and revolutionary and author of The Wretched of the Earth. The unpreparedness of the educated classes, the lack of practical links between them and the mass of people, their laziness and, let it be said, their cowardice at the decisive moment of the struggle will give rise to tragic mishaps. Is what Franz Fanon said in this quote applicable to the uprising currently occurring in the United States? It is painfully clear there is no clear leadership on a national level. The ones that have power, popular support and infrastructure to lead right now are the prominent progressives in the Democratic National Congress, like Senator Bernie Sanders and the young congresswoman known as the Squad, which includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Ayanya Presley of Massachusetts and Rashida Taleb of Michigan. They're not being true to their stated convictions. The reason they rose to prominence and popularity in a very short space of time and the reasons they were elected to office in the first place. Tragically, they all seem to have co been co-opted and silenced by the establishment and have therefore been rendered ineffective at this critical time. Since they're not part of the solution, they have become part of the problem. I would say Fanon's reference to cowardice at the decisive moment of the struggle very clearly applies to the progressive push inside the democratic machine. They have let us down wholesale when their leadership really could have made a profound difference. Trump has made it clear that he plans to rewrite history and spread misinformation across the country in order to win the election. The US is still living in the middle of an accelerating COVID-19 pandemic, but Trump has already moved all of his attention to the campaign trail, leaving the American people stranded. He knows that the only way he can win re-election is if he divides and distracts us. Thank you, Peter. We'll have to leave it there. Okay, thanks a lot.
That was the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, with the Sam Cooke standard, A Change Is Gonna Come. Uh, we're on the paradigm shift on Community Radio 4 Z, and we're talking Black Lives Matter. In that interview, Peter Gray uh, talked about the squad and some progressive congresswomen who have been elected to the uh, in the Democratic Party to the United States Congress. Now, he delivered there a stinging rebuke for their dropping the ball and caving into the corporate leadership of their party, the Democratic Party. However, um, we didn't hear from them, but we will contact Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez again and ask her about her intentions in the lead-up to the presidential elections in November of this year. We'll also try to contact the other progressives. That's Ilan Omar of Minnesota, Ayanya Presley of Massachusetts, Rashida Talab of Michigan. Now, let's put the whole Black Lives Matter campaign into historical perspective. So we'll go to hear the voices of another generation of civil rights leaders. Malcolm X will hear first on police brutality, Martin Luther King and his dream, uh, Coretta Scott King talking about the uprising in the 1960s. Let's go there now. This is Malcolm X. You're on the paradigm shift. It's coming up towards quarter to two, quarter to one. for you and me to devise some kind of method or strategy to offset some of the events or re a repetition of the events that have taken place here in Los Angeles recently, we have to go to the root. We have to go to the cause. Dealing with the condition itself is not enough. And it is because of our effort toward getting straight to the root that people oftentimes think we're dealing in hate. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate, you should ask yourself who taught you to hate being what God gave you. And I, for one, as a Muslim, believe that the white man is intelligent enough 
if he were made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk. Stop sweet talking it. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. That was Malcolm X on police brutality. You're on Black Lives Matter. We're talking about the recent uprising in the United States on the paradigm shift. Now let's go to Martin Luther King, his dream, and Coretta Scott King about racism. Oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. (laughs) My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Residents of Resurrection City and my fellow citizens, I stand here today with many mixed emotions, for it was five years ago that my late husband, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., stood in this very spot and told the nation about his dream. Perhaps racism can be traced to that dark period in our history when slavery became institutionalized for 244 years. The road to justice, peace, and brotherhood is difficult. We must renew our strength, increase our faith, and gird our courage. That was Martin Luther King and uh, his wife, Coretta Scott King. Now, let's have a look at what's been going on in the South. We're seeing the statues of Southern slave owners being torn down by demonstrators from the Black Lives Matter movement. They're protesting against the glorification of racists like Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general from Virginia, Lee was opposed to racial equality in the United States and was a slave owner in the 1860s. So there's a good song by Neil Young about that Southern feeling that they've got there towards racism and slavery. Let's go to it. This is Neil Young with Southern Man.
That was Neil Young with Southern Man. This is the paradigm shift and we're talking Black Lives Matter. Now, the civil rights movement had a profound effect on the United States. Desegregation was won in the South. Um, greater work rights for African-American, uh, the famous I Am A Man march that occurred in the South, um, which led Martin Luther King down there to make his I Have A Dream speech. Um, and the busing of children to schools, um, giving greater educational equality um, and, 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 and allowing African-American kids to grow up with uh, a better education. There was, these were two of the positive effects. It also had a big effect on music and I think it's very, there's an interplay between music and, and politics. Uh, on the, the last segment here, we've got a historian, Michael Cogswell, who devoted his life to preserving the legacy of the great jazz musician, trumpeter, vocalist and composer, Louis Armstrong, or Satchmo. And in this next piece, Michael talks about how Louis Armstrong rose from poverty in the early 1900s and how his views on how he formed views on civil rights and the movement that followed. He also talks about marijuana and he talks about his recording with the famous Austrian-American singer Lottie Lenya. Lottie Lenya is best remembered for her performances of the songs of her first husband, Kurt Weil, who joined with Bertolt Brecht in making radical theatre in the 1920s. The Thripity Opera is one of those, uh, that, that, that theatre. Um, 
Anyway, in this segment, Armstrong helps Slottie get the right beat for the song from the Thripney Opera called Mac the Knife. Lenya was a theatre singer and unfamiliar with, with the coda of, um, and the beat of jazz, but um, Armstrong very gently helps her in this, uh, to get this song right in this rather unique recording. So let's go to Michael Cogswell now. The Paradigm Shift is indebted to the New York podcast Fresh Air for this recording of Michael Cogswell and Louis Armstrong and Lottie Yenya, all who have now passed away. So that's goodbye from me, and let's go out with this really great lesson in how to sing in the jazz coda. Well, Lewis grew up in a neighborhood of New Orleans that was so rough, it was nicknamed the battlefield. And that's, that's the environment Lewis grew up in, is uh, pimps and prostitutes and street people and nightlife people and gamblers. And uh, he loved them all. He, he uh, always speaks of his childhood in the most glowing terms of what a wonderful childhood he had. Uh, he and his mother and sister lived in a little two-room house with a dirt floor and there was a privy out back and they were so poor that occasionally Lewis and his sister would go through garbage to find vegetables and so they could cut out the rotten parts and eat what was remaining. Uh, but in spite of uh, uh, that type of childhood, Lewis always refers to his childhood with, with great affection is when the Little Rock crisis was unfolding, Lewis was out in the boondocks, I think North Dakota, and a local reporter knocked on his door to interview the famous Mr. Armstrong who's in town. Lewis at that time was watching the television news broadcast about Little Rock, and he let loose with both barrels. He said that President Eisenhower was two-faced and had no guts. He called Governor Orville Faubus an uneducated plowboy. He said, the way they're treating my people in the South, the government can go to hell. Uh, the reporter wrote this up, took it back to his editor. The editor knew exactly what he had and, and showed it to Lewis, and Lewis approved it, wrote solid at the bottom of the sheet. Got published, it got picked up by the Associated Press, and went out all over the world. That's the most famous statement Lewis made about civil rights. But in his dressing room tapes and in his manuscripts, you can tell that Lewis, as a rule, felt that he could do more for the civil rights struggle by being Louis Armstrong, by performing, by knowing his fans, by traveling around the world. And that's, that's the tact he took. The most amusing things that comes to mind, there was a biography of Armstrong published that mentioned uh, in passing that Mez Mesro did arrangements for the Louis Armstrong Orchestra in the 30s. And I and other people read that and said, gee, that doesn't sound right. I mean, Mez Mesro was a part-time clarinet player, but he didn't have the technical facility to do arrangements for a, for a big band. Where on earth did that come from? Well, a couple of years ago, uh, we acquired a copy of an Armstrong letter from the Library of Congress, a letter that Lewis wrote to Mez Mesro in the 1930s. And he says, uh, in essence, Dear Mez, uh, we're doing a tour of Europe, and I need some arrangements. Now, you have to understand that Mez Mesro was Louis Armstrong's pot dealer. He says, Mez, I need some arrangements. I need enough arrangements <laughs> to last six weeks, and I need some really good arrangements, and I'm wiring the money to the American Express office in Paris, and you dig, Daddy, I know you'll understand. So uh, uh, apparently the biographer had seen this letter and not, not really understood what Louis was saying.
Well, we have tape recordings to Mac the Knights in the Armstrong archives. It is fascinating. Latalenia has come by this recording session, and Lewis is coaching her on the on the coda, on the tag, uh, to Mac the Knife, and she just can't get that final syncopation. And Lewis is so gracious and so patient with her. It, it's really a great example of, uh, of these two together. Jenny Diver. Look at your Lottie Lenya. So with Lucy Brown. Oh, the line from on the right deal. Now that Mackie's back in town. That's all right. Now all you got to do is you know? we straighten that. Now that Mackie's boom back That's in town. Then we'll pick up yeah. that. That was do it straight now. Good. See like this. Da da da. See, man. Keys. for you. It's like a phrase. Now that man keys. No, no, no. Make it eight notes. Get mad keys. Boom. Back in town. Good. Back in town. One, two, three. Like this. Don't just speed this up, you know. Now that man keys. So if you stay fast, it's still straight. See, because yeah. I'm going to start blowing right over you. Yeah. Not that mag heats. Boom. Back in town. One, two, three. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's it. Now we go right from the vocal. Come on. Okay. Okay. Where you starting from? Uh, right from the planet. Great. Tell me what it is. Okay. Vocal only. <laughs> oh, the shark has... Well, no, let him make it. Why don't you just start right on the Know that note out with straight up. Okay, Suki Tawdry. Now that Mac heats. Suki take two. All the way. Yeah, Suki Tawdry. No, just, just, just Suki Tawdry. All the same. Suki Tawdry. Jenny Diver. Lottie Lanyard. Oh, sweet Lucy Brown. Girl. 